This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Before I even saw any inmates in the yard, I knew something was wrong. And they're just kind of in the air. I could feel it. And I just knew something was wrong. The second thing I saw standing about who clapped to me was the fact of the way he handled riots and disturbances out there. You have to move fast. And he did. But, uh, the inmates were dissatisfied. I think the administration really didn't see it coming. And it just, uh, it just ignited. It got interesting that night. And I used to take my tear gas gun and go down and sit my cage down there and uh, keep peace, you know. <laughs> There was enough up there that knew that I maintained discipline and that no rioting would be permitted that somebody was going to be killed. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Stool Pigeon Saturday of our disturbing justice season here at Behind Gray Walls. This is Anthony. I'm talking to Sky down in Texas. I'm back in Texas now, and I'm here, and I'm ready to hear about John Snook in two parts is what I hear. Yes, I apologize, everybody, but I had over 400 pages of research on this man, and he lived a very long time, and he did not like to just sit around. So we're just going to get to about halfway through his life, and we'll do the second half of his life next week. So I hope <laughs> I hope you enjoy it, because this man is so fascinating, and I I hope a listener out there is a filmmaker and they are like, we got to turn this into a movie because this guy's life is, is seriously, it's incredible. He goes from, uh, I, I'm not going to even give you a hint. I'm just going to let you learn as I go here. I was going to say, you should probably <laughs> just tell us the story. Well, let's begin with some sources. Of course, the Idaho Daily Statesman, Library of Congress Chronicling America. I used newspapers from all across the country, particularly Alaska and Idaho, of course, but as you'll See, he he was a well-traveled man. Uh, Warren's biannual reports from 1909 to 1917, and then also 1924. The Digital Library of Georgia, the Georgia Historic Newspaper Collection. Uh, Findagrave.com and articles on members of the Snook family. I referenced author Kimberly Jensen's book, Organs Doctor to the World, Esther Pohl, Lovejoy, and a Life in Activism, which uh, mentions Charlotte Snook's family history, which is his wife. Uh, Centennial History of Lemhi County, Idaho, published in 1992, which is available on archive.org. An Atlas Obscura article about the Arctic Brotherhood. The first criminal trial that used fingerprints as evidence an article from Smithsonian Magazine, and a Wikipedia article on Puddinhead Wilson by Mark Twain. So, John Wilson Snook Jr. was born in Salmon, Idaho on October 20th, 1876, the year of the American Centennial, our 100-year celebration. He was born to John Walls and Emily Clara Ellis Snook. His father was born in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, and his mother was born in Thurlby, Lincolnshire, England. His mother's family came to the United States when she was two years old in 1856 and settled in Wisconsin. 
They crossed the plains in 1862 and settled in Auburn, Oregon for a year before moving to Centerville, Idaho, where her brother, who was named Boise Basin Ellis, was born. Why the name Boise Basin Ellis? Well, he was reportedly the first white child born in the Boise Basin. And the family moved to the Salmon area in the late 1860s, where Emily crossed paths with John Sr., who was a rancher and worked as a deputy sheriff. He was described as being very strict, physically tough, and even, quote, immune to discomfort. These are traits that would run through the Snook family. The couple, Emily and John Sr., they actually married in 1872, and they established a ranch in Salmon and had their son, John Jr., in 1876, followed by Charles and Phoebe. Born on uh, about a block from where I now live, <laughs> where the Pioneer Garage is here, on the 20th of October, 1876. That's right. You're hearing an oral history collected in 1968. I'll be using sections of this oral history throughout this series. 1876. I had a birthday week last Sunday. Yes, perhaps. 92. Now, if the story can't get any more rooted in American and Idaho history, Salmon is in Lemhi County in northeast Idaho, which is the home of Sacagawea. And you can actually go to Lemhi County and visit the Sacagawea Interpretive Cultural and Educational Center next time you're passing through that area. And the town is also known for rafting on the Salmon River, fishing, hiking, mountain biking, camping, and tons of snow trails for all your winter sports needs. 18-year-old John went to Logan, Utah in 1894, where he studied at the State Agricultural College of Utah for a year. And there he designed his own brand, which was a half-circle S, which became one of the oldest brands on record in Idaho's history. John's mother's brother-in-law was George L. Shoup, who was Idaho's 12th territorial governor, appointed by President Benjamin Harrison, and he was elected in 1890, right after Idaho became a state, to become Idaho's first state governor. And he only served as governor a few weeks before he resigned to take a position as an Idaho senator, a position which he held for over a decade. And John's other uncle was James McCainshoop, who married John's aunt from his mother's side of the family. So James Shoup was the U.S. Marshal in Alaska, and John's connections to these two men provided opportunities for him throughout his entire life and established his first job off the ranch in the exciting world of federal law enforcement. According to John, when he was 20 years old, three men stole and slaughtered his pet heifer. He used his skills to track the men, bust them, and bring them to trial. So I took them to the barn, got on a saddle horse, and got my six-shooter. And I saw a piece of hide floating around down in the lake, and I threw my lasso out of it and pulled it in, and there was my half sickless brand. Then I could tell by the footprints, I thought that they'd brought the head down and thrown it in the water, too. And, and I, with a stick, I was able to find it, and I took off my clothes and pulled out, and there was the, the head with my tag in the ear, oh, with my name on it. Then I, I followed, and there were three horse tracks. And when they left, there was one fellow foot leading the horse. And they circled around, and then they went down Haynes Creek and went followed down. And I knew then the one that was leading the horse was the one that had the beef on the horse. 
and I tracked them for five miles. And I found out who they were and came to town and met the sheriff. And this opened the door. So Uncle Marshall Shoup heard about his nephew's skills and called on young John to become a deputy marshal in Alaska at the age of 21 in 1897. Can you imagine? John entered the scene right in the middle of the Klondike gold rush between 1896 and 1899 when an influx of around 100,000 miners flocked into the area in Alaska. This brought about plenty of crime, and John spent two years in charge of the prison at Sitka, Alaska, and it was deputy marshal in Daya and Skagway. He was known as Kid Marshal for good reason. While working as a deputy marshal in Daya, he nabbed an escapee from the Sitka jail. And the man's name was Walter Riley, and he had made it to this little secluded cabin. And John Snook, he was a master tracker, as we already saw as he tracked his old heifer down. He followed the tracks to this cabin and found Riley and arrested him. I had to walk seven miles with him, and that was the last time I ever walked on any of the trails without handcuffs on who I had arrested. But I thought, well, I was... uh, I had a six-shooter, and he didn't, but... He searched Riley for weapons and, you know, began marching him back down the Daya Trail. And four or five men coming up the trail, one of them I had a summons for, and he happened to be a pal of this fellow that I had under arrest, and while I was reading the summons to the, to the other man, why, his pal slipped this Ivor Johnson 38 Hamilton six-shooter into his... Uh, Mackinac coat pocket. Oh, boy. And then after we left and was walking down the trail was when he attempted to kill me and make his getaway. And came to a secluded spot on the trail called Finnegan's Point. Riley actually spun around with a loaded revolver leveled at Snook. And Riley shouted to Snook, throw up your hands. Snook wasn't about to take orders and instead made a grab for the gun. And right at that time, Riley pulled the trigger, and a bullet passed through Snook's left hand, which still clung onto the gun despite having a hole through it now. That's the reason that finger is that way yet, you see. Well, I can't straighten it sense. out, you see. that I just grabbed it in time, to, and it, it severed that cord there. It came out over here on the side. Oh, boy. But these two, these two fingers and thumb saved my life because I got his wrist like that, and he couldn't shot that in the crash, but he couldn't turn it close enough. Riley fired two more times but missed. Snook pushed Riley to the ground, unholstered his own revolver, and placed it against Riley's head with the intention of ending him right then and there. But he stopped because some travelers had heard the gunshot and were running in his direction to help him take Riley and arrest him. So they wrangle Riley, they help Snook, who's losing a ton of blood, and they return to Dai. There, Snook is patched up, and the scar on his left hand was a lifelong reminder that a man could turn on him at any moment. One of the first newspaper reports I could find detailing John's attributes was from November of that year, 1898, describing him as, quote, one of the most trusted deputies on the force. He and another deputy marshal were transporting 17 prisoners and four detained witnesses by themselves from Sitka to Juneau. This was a regular check that Snook would make handling Alaska's most desperate criminals. It led to John crossing paths with the Clayson family. 
The Claysons moved to Skagway, Alaska to cash in on the gold rush during the summer of 1897. The family found a surefire way of cashing in when they realized that there was a void. Supply stores for the miners flocking to the area. There were plenty of miners, but there weren't a lot of supply merchants. So this young man named Fred Clayson opened a business called F.W. Clayson & Company, which outfitted equipment, food, and clothing for the miners coming into town. Within just a couple of years, Fred had saved about $40,000 from his business, which today would make him well over a millionaire at about $1,243,841. That's a lot of money. He was considered a visionary, courageous and charismatic by relatives, and not only did he run a lucrative business, he also served a term on city council, all in his early 20s. However, on Christmas Day in 1899, Fred Clayson was traveling from the town of Dawson, where he had purchased gold and was returning to his home at Skagway on bicycle with two companions. The trip should have taken the trio a day to travel. He had somewhere between $2,000 and $3,000 in gold dust on him. They decided to stop at a, a friend's house on, for Christmas dinner. They didn't realize that the real trail had actually been covered up with snow and a new one had been made to redirect them into an ambush. The trio rode into a trap where known outlaws George O'Brien and Thomas Graves were lying in wait. Both men were suspected of a series of thefts that had occurred around that time along the trail. When the trio arrived at the thieves' camp, O'Brien and Graves leveled their revolvers and filled the three men with lead. After looting their belongings, the killers dragged the three bodies to the Yukon River, cut a hole in the ice, and tossed them in. After several days, family members reached out to the authorities, and the U.S. Marshals were on the case. Foul play was immediately suspected, and authorities found the camp of George O'Brien and Thomas Graves and sent word via telegraph to capture anyone on the road matching George O'Brien's description. And sure enough, George was spotted and arrested, but the authorities couldn't hold him for murder because there weren't any bodies as evidence. However, the watch that George wore on his wrist matched missing Fred Clayson's. George's partner, Thomas Graves, was never found, and many speculated that George had killed him to collect on the entire bounty. Authorities held George on a separate charge until June 13, 1900, when Fred's body was discovered on a sandbar on the Yukon River below Selkirk with two bullet wounds, one in the chest and one in the head. It was considered one of the most brutal murdered cases during the Yukon Gold Rush, a cold-blooded slaughter of three men on Christmas Day. George was tried and convicted for murder in the first degree and condemned to hang, which he did on August 23, 1901. And I could not find other evidence for it, but the Centennial History of Salmon, Volume 3, stated that John Snook, quote, performed the execution of O'Brien by hanging him from the wharf in Skagway. Hmm. Being in Yukon is like, that is, I feel like during the gold rush would just be the craziest way to be like a police officer of any kind. Like, oh yeah, so much going on out there. Absolutely. And I, I am just taking the highlights of, of John's career. And it's crazy because it actually leads him to meeting Fred's sister. Her name was Charlotte Clayson. And the tragedy actually brings John Snook and Charlotte together. And a little bit about Charlotte. She was born in Portland, Oregon on June 14th, 1884. And like John, she was very serious and very law-abiding and came from a good, hardworking family. 
And even though she was only a teenager, the family approved of Charlotte marrying this deputy U.S. Marshal, which they did on January 27th, 1903. John was 26 years old, and Charlotte was 18 at the time. I was married to Charlotte Clayton. In fact, we had a double wedding at her mother's home in Portland, Oregon on the 27th of January, 1903, when Bill Blanchard married Annie Clancy Clayson and I married Charlotte Clayson. The other couple was Charlotte's sister, Annie May, who married another Alaskan railroad man named William Blanchard. And when they returned to Alaska together, they were welcomed at a port with a band playing and rice being thrown at them. Quote, the popular young lady and gentleman were made to feel that they were well known to Alaskan fame. <laughs> and just two days later, a prank was pulled on Snook, which really demonstrated his nature. So the saloon owner advertised an event where he was barbecuing a whole deer for lunch. And I couldn't figure out why, but it was illegal due to game laws in Alaska to kill and serve deer at the time. So Snook headed to this saloon called the Mascot Saloon to arrest the keeper. He didn't know that it was a practical joke. And the, quote, deer was actually roasted mutton. Snook entered the Mascot Saloon, collected a piece of the meat to use as evidence in court. He arrested the saloon keeper, who kept the joke going by explaining that the deer meat was brought up from the Puget Sound in Washington. And Snook demanded to see the manifest of the steamboat that brought it to Alaska. And right then, someone gave the joke away, which Snook did not find funny. He reportedly did not return to the Mascot Saloon. He was extremely serious about law and his reputation upholding it, which we will see throughout his entire life. And I mean, I get that, but that's kind of a bummer that he like doesn't have that good of a sense of humor because that would make his story even better if he was willing to be like, all right, that was a good one. Yeah, and I think that's why he, he upheld law and order so well at this institution. So as I was saying, his job included everything from transporting prisoners to solving crimes and getting into all kinds of scrapes. He regularly met with unwitting criminals that arrived in the port after getting tipped off by other marshals, and he was dedicated to keeping civility in the wild, rugged mining towns of Alaska. At one point, he oversaw a rabies outbreak in the local dog population and had to track down all the rabid dogs and kill them. He had to arrest a, quote, man gone wrong on religion who thought he was Abraham and was threatening to sacrifice neighborhood children. And at one point, he noticed that his neighbor had not left his house for a week because he noticed that there was no snow tracks leading to and from the house. So he investigated and found that the neighbor was insane. He had been, quote, commanded by God not to eat for 11 days, and in that time had invented a, a machine for perpetual motion and was waiting for American scientists to help him with the patent. It was a crash course for Snook dealing with criminals and the mentally unbalanced. He still had some fun, though. He was the community auctioneer. He auctioned off real estate and stolen property. He was well-connected. His membership in the Elks Lodge in 1900 helped him further his network. And in 1904, he was elected in the exalted ruler of the Skagway Elks Club. And this was the executive officer who enforced and performed duties at the lodge. And he was also a, a member of the Arctic Brotherhood, a fraternal order that began in 1899 in Alaska with the motto, No Boundary Line Here. The order was created by gold prospectors and began with 11 and eventually grew to around 10,000 members at its peak. 
And if you go to Skagway today, you can actually see the Arctic Brotherwood house now, which is adorned with thousands of pieces of driftwood. It's this fascinating-looking building. I definitely recommend you, you check out a photo of it. It's like driftwood just kind of placed all over the outside of the building, and it's it stands out. It's very unique on the block. <laughs> he also ran a gun club and regularly held competitions where he ranked at the top, and marksmanship would be a skill he'd practiced throughout his entire life. So I feel like his hobbies still have to do with his job. Like <laughs> exactly, nothing yeah. that he does networking. is not. Yeah, he's you know he's he's collecting guns, which he uses on his job. He's making networks. He's selling like stolen property. Like he does not <laughs> do anything that is not related to his job. Yeah, he's not just an easygoing like I'm going to sit on the couch today and read a. A beachy novel. No, he's going to go practice his marksmanship and, you know, tracking animals and everything else. And, yeah, he was never off duty. Like, throughout his entire life, he was never off duty. Uh, in 1904, he and Charlotte had their first son, John C. Snook Jr. And soon after that, John sent a letter of resignation to his uncle, Marshall Shoup, who granted it on July 1st, 1904, so that he could return to Idaho after seven eventful years in Alaska. Quote, Mr. Snook conducted his office with such fidelity and courage that there has never been a breath of scandal connected with his name. He had made more than 500 arrests. His uncle also responded in a widely published letter to John saying, quote, I doubt if I will ever be able to find anyone to take your place as well qualified to perform the various duties of the office. John Snook was not even 28 years old. And the Snooks returned to Idaho to ranch and raise livestock. So he spent his days trading and selling livestock back in Idaho in 1904 and driving cattle and racing and trading horses. And their second son, Frederick Hughes Snook, was born on February 1st, 1908, during a visit to Charlotte's family in Portland. And when they returned to the ranch in Salmon, John just couldn't stay on the ranch for long. In mid-1908, he decided to run as a representative for Lemhi County in the Idaho legislature as a Republican. His campaign primarily consisted of a recitation of his career as a U.S. Marshal in Alaska and his family's reputation, which was enough to get him elected. He would ultimately serve in the Idaho House of Representatives from 1909 to 1921. One of my favorite write-ups comes from February 1909, in which Idaho statesman staff writer Rex Osborne interviews Idaho's new representatives, and he said this about Snook. Quote, John W. Snook Jr. is one of the younger members of the House. Mr. Snook is mild in manner and unobtrusive in disposition, but don't attempt any undue liberties with him. His blue-gray eyes may seem at first glance to indicate a very easygoing character, but don't start anything rough with John Snook. Take another look at those eyes. You'll find a glint of Arctic in them. And well, you may, for Mr. Snook was a deputy United States Marshal in Alaska in days when speed with the smoke wagon counted for a heap. He arrested his full share of bad people and was only nicked once. That was when a desperado shot him through the hand, and he carries a stiff little finger as a souvenir of that occasion. Mr. Snook is a member of the Arctic Brotherhood and also for the most northerly lodge of elks on American soil. So he was seen as this careful and far-seeing legislator who took his job extremely seriously and wouldn't vote for a bill unless he believed in it. And at one point, he actually made a member of his own party rewrite a bill about 
the public option before he would even think about voting on it because it was it was too vague. He said the language is too vague. I'm not going to vote vote on this thing. This spread his his reputation far and wide, and he was seen as energetic. Uh, he was responsible, honest in all of his dealings, and the, the legislator actually passed an act setting indeterminate sentences for prisoners, which gave the board of pardons and the warden of the state penitentiary the power to decide when a prisoner was fit for parole. The legislator saw it as a way to treat criminals with a careful analysis of their mental, moral, and physical states rather than simply punish them for their crime. It is a major act that required new thinking and corrections and provided prisoners the opportunity to strive to be better, work hard, stay out of trouble, learn new habits, and be rewarded with earlier releases. So Snook was like pivotal for this being passed into law. And this was just as a legislature, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and two, I think um, he is a politician that we sort of like need today. Right. As like as annoying as he sounds to like be one of his coworkers to be like, are you serious? You want me to do what to this? But the like I wanted to keep it vague for a reason, Snook. Like leave it. But uh-huh. at the same time, he is a politician who sounds like he would actually work for the people, which... He was extremely frugal, and anything he did, if it affected taxes, like, he wanted to know for sure that it was going to be an effective policy. Like, and if there was any vague or questionable things, you know, he he was the first to stand up and be like, nope, this is not happening, even if it was his party bringing something up. All of this is happening during this huge gubernatorial election that was raging that we discussed in episode 18 with inmate Barney O'Neill and James Brady. Brady actually wins the nomination, and it's his job to appoint a ward in the state penitentiary. And who better than local hero and former U.S. Marshal who helped pass the new prison act, John Snook. And on April 14, 1909, John Snook is elected warden of the Idaho State Penitentiary. This season of Behind Gray Walls, Disturbing Justice, as well as the Disturbing Justice exhibit, were made possible by the Boise City Department of Arts and History and the National Endowment for the Humanities. We'd like to thank them for their generous support. He took the oath of office and entered the prison on April 19, 1909, replacing Warden Whitney. He held the position of warden until 1917, and his wife Charlotte actually served as the matron in the women's ward during that time period when women were incarcerated. Warden Snook's attitude was the same. It was no-nonsense, law-abiding, responsible. He's a man of his word. And we'll focus on the highlights of his career as warden because we will get to some of the other stories while he's warden while we study the prisoners that were incarcerated at that time. One of his first duties was to act as executioner for prisoner Fred Seward on May 7th, 1909. A month into his position, he is set to be executioner. And we'll definitely cover Seward's story in future episodes. But in brief, Fred Seward killed his girlfriend, who happened to be a sex worker in Moscow, Idaho, in 1908, when she refused to leave her job and marry him and and move to Boise. He attempted suicide but failed, which gave the state another crack at his death. Snook prepared the gallows himself, tying a sack of sand weighing several hundred pounds at the end of the noose to remove any slack days before the execution. And on the morning of the execution, Warden Snook moved quickly through the procedure. Quote, 
The death warrant was read to the condemned man by Warren Snook between 8 and 8.02 o'clock. The death march from the cell to the gallows began at 8.04. The trap was sprung by the warden at exactly 8.09 and 5 seconds by a stopwatch. The body dropped 7 feet and death was instantaneous, the neck having been broken. The body hung slightly quivering and straining from reflex action with the heart pulse strong and bearing at 100 beats per minute till 8.15. Then the pulse slowly weakened and at 8.16.35 the doctor pronounced the man dead. Fred's body was immediately placed in a coffin and taken to the prison cemetery for burial, and it was a serious duty, and the journalists that were present said that, quote, no hitch had taken place in the affair, the new warden having accepted the most serious of his new duties without a tremor, and no one, not even the prisoner himself, having shown a sign of weakness throughout the ordeal. It was Snook's, like, his first real test, and he passed. He saw idleness as the worst enemy of all prisoners, and we we discussed that in the Snook Sense episode. And he spent almost all of his time during his career in the warden's office coming up with ways to keep the men busy. As we mentioned in the 1910 Snook Sense episode, his first biannual report in 1909-1910, he wrote that, quote, not only is the prisoner injured by idleness, but the prison itself. A score of idle or partly idle convicts can do more mischief, subvert more discipline, destroy more regularity and system than a regiment of men kept at proper legitimate employment. In my opinion, the very key to proper discipline is a labor system that embraces in its scope every person in prison fit to work. He put the men to work digging a ditch for the Boise River to water crops in June 1909 and helped basically establish the start of a self-sustaining prison system. Tons of events were occurring at the prison in April 1910, and we discussed the successful escape of Tom Harris that occurred when he and his cellmate John Cunningham worked together prying bricks from the ventilation of their cell and climbed to the roof, and Harris jumped off the roof and and escaped into the night. And at the same time, Warden Snook had changed the dress code of prisoners. So prior to his position, every prisoner wore black and white zebra stripes, which were traded out for gray suits. Snook said that it boosted the morale of the prisoners and, quote, not only benefited the men in a mental way because they worried less and cultivated a measure of self-respect impossible to wearers of stripes, but it also was highly appreciated by the guards and deputy warden who found that the prisoners were more tractable, meaning more manageable, when not compelled to wear the badge of penitentiary disgrace. Hmm, that's really interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that, that because I knew that, obviously, that the, they had changed from stripes to more solid but i didn't know it was so early yeah yeah it was it was snook's idea and it required all the new prisoners for the first three months to wear the large zebra stripes and if they were good those would be replaced with these smaller striped uniforms these really thin stripes and that was for another three months and then if they complied further no write-ups no you know squawky or anything like that they actually graduated to this cadet gray suit and it gave them the opportunity to basically strive for a uniform that was less degrading and this is occurring while john stook was preparing for a july hanging of john fleming who i mentioned in the first episode of the podcast with patrick murphy john was convicted after killing a neighbor over a water property rights 
And according to Patrick Murphy in Behind Gray Walls, quote, old John Fleming was an interesting character. He was sentenced to be hanged. He was in the death cell 18 months and came within a few hours of the gallows. The rope was stretched and ready. He had been given his last shave and bath, and everybody thought he was a goner. The night before he was to go, about 9 or 10 o'clock, word came that he was commuted to life in prison. When the guard came in and told him the news, John merely said, That's carrying a joke a long ways. (laughs) Needless to say, John Snook, he was preparing everything for Fleming's hanging, creating more tension in the yard you know, leading to that uprising attempt. So, of course, soon after that, the uprising attempt occurred, and Snook leveled the gun at the men who charged into his office and stopped them from from doing that. Later, in February 1911, John Snook was reappointed unanimously as warden of the penitentiary, along with funding to purchase more farmland for the prison. Snook continued finding work for the prisoners quarrying stone, which was used in the construction of a schoolhouse for the deaf and blind in Gooding. He had a new hospital constructed on site, a barn that could hold 16 horses and enough room for a wagon shed, and there was a great write-up in the Statesman from July 1911 titled, Square Deal But No Frills Go, Convicts Treated Like Men at Idaho Pen While They Deserve It, Warden Opposed to Many Idealistic Schemes of Similar Institutions, and it compared the liberties that were allowed for Oregon prisoners who were sent to work camps across the state without guards overseeing them. In Oregon, Trustee prisoners were actually sent to track and arrest fellow escapee prisoners. All of this based on the honor of their own word. One escapes, you send another Oregon prisoner to go and track that escapee down. Snook is like, no, I don't trust this system. And he didn't agree (laughs) with it. And he was super aware of the convict code that ran in institutions. He said, quote, in the first place, they wouldn't want to betray a fellow convict if he did escape. In the second place, because the trustees and other grades of prisoners are put in together, one convict would not dare to go out and capture an escape for fear of being mistreated or attacked by other men when he returned. Of course, like if he captures another escape prisoner, he's going to be barred, you know, he's going to be treated as a stool pigeon, as a as a snitch, as a rat by the other prisoners if he does return with the captured man. So clearly Snook's not going to glom onto this new system. A bill was passed that year in the legislature in 1911 to make escape an even less tempting voyage for prisoners, as anyone caught would have up to five years tacked onto their sentence. And we'll get into the short life of a desperate outlaw named James McKenstry, number 1613, in a future episode. But he escaped from the prison, was captured, and escaped his captors two times before he was caught by Snook in Cuna. And he escaped a second time when he was recaptured by Snook near the Natatorium, which was just across the street from the prison, with the help of hound dogs. And uh, prisoners escaping from the prison under Snook were usually tracked and captured by Snook himself. And McKenstry was the first man to have this extra five years put onto his sentence. In 1912, he had the prisoners construct the prison guardhouse, which is right outside the main administration building when you visit the site. And it was good practice to have these men live at the site in case of emergencies that we are discussing this entire season. Many guards who were unmarried and just beginning their employment lived in this house and basically slept in dorm room conditions eating their meals right there on site. It was kind of compensation for their low salary because, uh, you know, free room and board was provided. 
Today, the College of Western Idaho rents the building for classrooms and a headquarters for their horticulture department. Besides capturing escapees and trying to keep this large population of men busy in 1911 and 1912, Snook had two other things he had hoped to accomplish as warden. To cure, quote, cocaine fiends and others afflicted with the dope habit, and to create a separate facility for youthful criminals. He said that after cleaning up the prison and cutting off all dope smuggling, he had found that men began to clear themselves up. And after some time, quote, the men who have left here are doing some steady, honest work in the different parts of the state. Cured. Absolutely cured. They don't want it again and wouldn't use it if they had to. That is the kind of citizens that the penitentiary of this state is sending out after they have served their sentences here. And we'll get in more of this next episode with his career in Atlanta, Georgia. Any idea why you might have a concern about youthful prisoners in 1912? Well, I do believe we had um, some young ones come in at that time. Yeah. Yeah, our second youngest, Mr. James Whitaker, 11-year-old, had entered the prison on charge of murder in the second degree with a 10 to 50-year sentence for killing his mother at this time. Warren Snook, he had no other option but to hold this little boy at the penitentiary and to try to segregate him away from the older prisoners because the industrial school at St. Anthony didn't have the resources. Snook said, quote, I can take care of one such boy as this. I might take care of three, but if more than that were received, it would almost be impossible to segregate them from the other prisoners. To allow such youngsters as this to mingle with the ordinary convicts would be to make sure that they would leave the institution hardened and habitual criminals. It would be like enrolling them as pupils in a school of crime. This boy might stay here at the industrial school, all right, but who knows? He's a murderer. And it would hardly do for him to mingle with children at that institution who are not criminal. Most of the children at the St. Anthony Industrial School are only unfortunate, and the place is not meant for a criminal institution. Of course, you can hear more on this case in our both our Barney O'Neill episode, episode 18, and the Stool Pigeon Saturday episode that followed with Suzanne Squires, who uh, highlighted James Whitaker's whole life. Can you imagine the pressure of being a warden and having to protect this young murderer within the walls? Like, No, I mean, I can't. Yeah, I can't imagine being a warden at all yeah. on top of being um, a state legislature, legislator. Um, yeah. And and then I extra can't believe that, like, you have this 11-year-old in prison. Like, what am I supposed to do with this literal kid? Having him be mentored by Barney O'Neill and allowing him to play baseball is, like, the only real, like, nurturing side of Snook that I ever really mm-hmm. came across. <laughs> so... Mm. But what a what a test! Like, geez, so early in your career as the warden, yeah, all these things he has to deal with. Oh, now that this is one of the biggest features I think of him as warden. In September 1912, Warden Snook helped establish the Bertillion and Fingerprint Criminal Bureau of Identification in Idaho. Prior to this, only the Bertillion, which we've discussed on previous episode, in which prisoners' measurements, including height, head length, cheek width, ear length, and other minute measurements were taken to distinguish them from each other. The unique natures of fingerprints hadn't been understood or seen as legal evidence until a case in 1911, when fingerprints were first accepted by U.S. courts as a reliable means of identification with the conviction of a man named Thomas Jennings in Chicago. 
In September 1910, Thomas had hoisted himself into a bedroom of a house late at night using a freshly painted railing, leaving behind these distinct fingerprints. He attempted to burglarize the home, but members of the family actually awoke, and the wife and daughter screamed. The husband of the house ran upstairs, found Thomas, and began fighting him. They actually tumbled back down the stairs, and when they got to the bottom, Thomas shot the husband and ran out into the night. He was captured soon after, wearing a torn and bloodied coat, but it wasn't enough evidence to convict him. The police discovered the railing with the fingerprints and actually took photos of it and cut the piece of the railing containing the prints as evidence and brought them into court. The defense attempted to state that fingerprints were different each time you touched a surface. Defense attorney actually agreed to use his own fingerprints to show that fingerprints, they were always different, that they weren't a good means of evidence. As we know today, this backfired on him, and it showcased that fingerprints were an extremely unique characteristic to each of us basically forever changing detective and police work. Thomas Jennings was actually convicted on the evidence of his fingerprints and hanged on February 16th, 1912. He's the first man to be convicted with this newfound science. That's so interesting. I, and we just, I mean, since it's been around since essentially, you know, 1900s, I like, I think I didn't know that people thought that your fingerprints would change. And I guess that means that people didn't, I mean, they were so busy that they didn't have time to, like, sit and look at their fingers and be like, oh, that's an interesting pattern. Or, like, you know, like, oh, there's that little swirl in the middle. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I guess it's just one of those things where if you don't know about it, then you're not going to pay attention to it. But that's really interesting. So this this Idaho Statesman article, it, it was titled, Puddinhead Wilson's System of Catching Criminals and Is Popular. Warden Snook Strongly Favors Fingerprint Method for Idaho Penitentiary. And it documents like all of these discoveries right here in 1910, 1911, 1912. This is from November 1st, 1911. And it acknowledges the imperfection of the Bertillion system. And it actually recounts the story of these, of these two first cousins who were both in prison. I think they were in Mississippi. And they were named Will West and William West. And all of their measurements were like the exact same. And they looked like twins. The only really unique feature was their fingerprints. And Puddenham Wilson, that refers to this 1894 Mark Twain novel where a young lawyer moves to a town and begins collecting fingerprints, which are later used in this murder trial. It's this whole thing. I, I haven't read the book, so I just kind of got a tiny bit about it just to get an idea of what it was. But Warden Snook was like, yeah, I mean, if this is better than the, the Bertillion system, I think we need it. And he wrote to the legislator, you know what, you know, this, this stuff, it costs $800. But I think it'd be important for Idaho to do it. Legislator wouldn't pay the $800 for him to start it. And so, you know, being his frugal self, he actually spent $200 and he had, quote, most of the equipment made in the carpentry shop of the institution by the convicts themselves. And he basically brought Idaho to the scientific standards of penology and of the time himself out of his own pocketbook to buy the equipment and began his own personal fingerprint collection. And this actually evolved as he realized it would be more effective to send copies of these fingerprints to the National Bureau of Identification at Levensworth. 
helping to establish a centralized database of criminals that all institutions across the country could and would eventually contribute to and rely upon. So following Snook, the prison administration from surrounding states actually began collecting fingerprints and making copies and sending them to Levensworth and to Warden Snook, who compared them with Idaho's prisoners. And this, you know, in 1915, Snook discovered that there was a fingerprint match for an escapee from the penitentiary in Walla Walla. This man serving in Idaho under the name Lawrence Romer, number 2354. And he had escaped from Walla Walla a few years before, and authorities in Colorado were also after him. And he had been serving his time quietly under the name Lawrence Romer in Idaho for stealing a car. And had it not been for this fingerprint database, nobody would have been the wiser. His other aliases included Lawrence Raymond, Frank Norton, Ludwig Romer, and L.R. Mitchell. In 1916, Warden Snook actually wrote in the Biennial Report about this program. He said, quote, This bureau has been conducted by the warden personally without additional compensation, and 139 identifications have been made of convicts received here who have previously served time in other penitentiaries. And as the law of this state provides that no prisoner who has served a previous term in any penitentiary shall be eligible for parole, therefore the identification of recidivists is the utmost importance. I can't emphasize how revolutionary this program was and how important it still is to corrections today. Like, it's so wild. And he was, like, pivotal in the West to, like, everybody, we got to get on board in creating this criminal database so that we get, we're all connected. You know, it was a regular thing. As soon as somebody came, he would take their fingerprints and send it to this database and then... They would check it at Levensworth and compare it, and they would find if this person was, in fact, their true name, and if they had served time anywhere else, if they were wanted anywhere else, you know, were they escapees or anything else like that. So uh, with all the escapes that happened during Snook's time, in his wanted posters, he includes all the information on the fingerprinting so that local authorities can look themselves. Now, in the 1913-1914 biannual report, Snook pointed out the issue the state was running into. Quote, we are face to face with a condition whereby the state sentences a person to be confined in the penitentiary at hard labor without first having made provisions for furnishing of such labor. He points out that it seems like having prison labor would be a detriment to free labor outside the prison, but he qualifies having prisoners work because it reduces the tax burden on the free laborers on the outside. He began leasing land at the Eagleson Farm, having a farmer named James Miller, number 1738, who was serving an eight-year term for incest, lead other prisoners in cultivating the land. He also toured the Walla Walla Institution, which had a workshop that made hundreds of dollars a day for the state making cloth sacks. Snook wanted the same for the prison and called for the creation of a shirt factory, which would come about... 10 years later, long after he was gone. Instead, prisoners were sent up to help the Gem Irrigation District in Owyhee County to cultivate about 80 acres of crops and further develop the land by clearing and tilling more for the following years, laying out roads, digging wells, and the newspaper states, quote, aside from the rattlesnakes they constantly encounter, they like the work very much and are building some good roads. Rattlers are very thick there, and the other night one of the prisoners awoke to find one of them, an old fellow with an unusually large number of rattles, comfortably coiled up beside him in his bed. (laughs) I'm sorry, I had to include it. It was just so funny. That's the end of 1913. Let's get into 1914. 
he had one of the most daring over-the-wall escape attempts by a prisoner that I will cover next season by a man named Ulysses Birup, and I don't even want to get into that story, so stick around for next season for that. Regardless, it led Snook to requesting money to have the 17- to 20-foot wall extended to prevent any more escapes. The request by the legislator again was denied. They just did not want to give him money. He was saving all this money left and right, having the prisoners work. Why give him any more money? He's doing a great job on, you know, the money we're giving him. Well, but that seems counterproductive. Like, if he's saving all this money, then there should theoretically be money to give him in order to make the prison safer. Right, yeah. It's it's this strange counterintuitive thing. Yeah. (laughs) By the end of 1914, Snook's work at the prison was looking excellent to taxpayers. Uh, He had a 150-ton silo built, 400 acres of land had been tilled, and 300 acres were planted, resulting in 944 bushels of oats, 160 bushels of barley, and 2,000 pounds of potatoes. Yay, Idaho. Yay, Idaho. (laughs) He was creating a profit for the penitentiary, and by December 1914, the balance was at $4,550.19, which would be about $117,000 today, which sounds extraordinary, which is exactly what new governor Moses Alexander was probably thinking in January 1915. You see, the former state treasurer, O.V. Allen, number 2216 at the penitentiary, and his deputy treasurer, Fred Coleman, number 2236, were caught in a major embezzlement scheme, both pleading guilty to embezzling $70,354.68 from the state of Idaho. Wow. Huge scandal. They entered the prison during the fall of 1914 as Democratic Governor Moses was entering the office, and he needed to show the people of Idaho that he was going to clean up the government. A day after his inauguration, Governor Alexander called for all state institutions to be audited, starting with the penitentiary. He called for the chief examiner, Axel P. Ramstead, to look at the prison books. Snook was downtown when Ramstead showed up with an executive order to look at him, so the deputy warden allowed him inside to start looking at the books. Snook returned and stopped Ramstead from continuing, and he stated that it was up to the prison board to authorize an audit, not the governor alone. And this, of course, this threw up red flags to the media. Mm -hmm. What was old warden Snook hiding out there? So Snook had to backtrack, and he stated several times to the journalists that he wasn't worried about the prison books, just that the governor didn't have the power to call on an audit in the way that he had. News began circulating in this newspaper called the Capitol News, saying that the prison books were being kept by the prisoners. Again, not a good look. Prisoners should not be keeping the books, especially when you have two embezzlers in the prison now. <laughs> so mm-hmm. Snook had to stop all of these salacious rumors. He said, quote, the prison books are not being kept by a convict, and never have been. They have been kept by clerks from the outside only. He reached out to the journalists repeatedly to correct statements and called for the board to gather and vote for an audit, which they did. What do you think they found? I would think, based on Snook, uh, nothing. (laughs) 
<laughs> yes. Yeah, like, like more than nothing. We're talking about a man dedicated yeah. to law and order. Like they like found that like it wasn't that the prison was taken. The prison was actually like giving money to like the outside. <laughs> like that's how clean those books were. Yeah, he was like literally like sending taxpayers like a dollar each, yeah. just like hey, we have this. Extra yeah, he money. was just like, here's yeah. your refund. We didn't use this. No. So on January 29th, 1915, the Idaho Statesman released a story titled. Books finest Gleason has yet seen. Records at penitentiary well kept and complete in every detail. High praise for Warden. And board members actually hired a man named W.H. Gleason to examine the books, and they didn't want anyone from the state who might purposefully hide anything, any wrongdoing, to look into the accounts. And Gleason literally declared that under Warden Snook, the accounts were, quote, the most complete of any department of the state government examined by him. Snook was off the hook. The best part of this is from February 4th, just a few days later, when a journalist from the Idaho Statesman posted a write-up about the cost for the prison audit. Quote, it cost the state $192.50 to find out that the books of the penitentiary are among the best kept in the state. The investigation of the books of the institution was started as a result of the governor sending Axel P. Ramstead to the penitentiary the day after his inauguration to make an audit of the books. Warren Snook refused to allow Mr. Ramstead to make an investigation, asserting that he is not answerable to the governor, but to the board of prison commissioners, composed of the governor, the secretary of state, and the attorney general. A few days later, the majority members of the board hired Mr. Gleason to make the audit. The governor again entered a protest to the board hiring anyone, declaring that he had no intention of implying that there was anything wrong with the books when he sent Mr. Ramstead to the institution. So the governor now has to backtrack and be like, no, I, I promise this wasn't it wasn't a political thing. It wasn't anything like that. I, I just I just didn't understand my duties and the requirements to have those done. Well, and I think, too, that this speaks to like sort of Snook's rule following and his like we do everything in the correct order and because like it wasn't it was literally just like I don't care if you do an audit I'm not hiding anything but you have to do it the right way like I feel like if most wardens that they had come and their books were clean you know just with the governor they would have been like okay I mean you won't find anything but it's just so indicative of what I feel like we're learning about Snook is that he was like no no I don't have anything to hide, but you have to do it right. Right, yeah. If you're gonna like, do it, he was do the it kid. Right. He was the kid in school that like everyone hated. Yeah, <laughs> snook by the book. <laughs> oh boy, this seemed like there were no hard feelings because Governor Alexander actually uh, reinstated Snook as warden two months after this event. But it wouldn't be like the only political issue that Snook would run into with a Democratic governor. We'll get to that in just a moment. But during the summer of 1915, Snook attempted again to establish a factory, this time a reed factory, to combat the idleness of the prison. Uh, Prisoners would be directed to make chairs, tables, and other furniture out of reeds, which was a a safe industry for prisoners to do. They were doing it in other states. But he couldn't get it up and running. So he continued creating work camps throughout the state for prisoners to work developing roads and cultivating farmland. And this resulted in one escape on April 2nd, 1916, in which a trustee named John Edmonston, number 2332, in from Teton County for grand larceny, he simply grabbed a prison horse and rode off. Authorities couldn't find him in the area. So the next day, Warren Stuck and Superintendent Arthur McLean started to follow the trail. 
The Idaho Statesman reported, quote, in the nine days the warden was absent from Boise, he traveled 400 miles by auto and at least 100 miles by foot and horseback. One night he slept in a cellar, and many times he missed his meals. The feature of the chase was that Edmiston was followed by the tracks left by the horse. They had crossed the Snake River following the trail several times, tracking him, and Warden Snook knew that they were close to him. He actually anticipated the next places that he was probably heading, so he actually wired the authorities in all these places that he's like, okay, I'm pretty sure he's going to Reno, but also wired this authority here. And the next day, they actually received word that Edmiston had been spotted in Arco, and authorities, they were on him. And Snook returned to Boise while McLean boarded a train to Arco and took Edmiston into custody. So this is where we get political again. In October 1916, this is one of the wildest stories in our state capitol building, hearkening back to the embezzlement charge of the previous administration and the auditing fiasco that followed soon after at the penitentiary. So on October 20th, a write-up appears in the Democratic slanted capitol newspaper, which we mentioned earlier, titled A Shifty Record about the Secretary of State, George Barker, whom the author alleged was a crooked politician who prevented the governor from auditing the books at the penitentiary, alleging that it provided Warden Snook time to tidy them up and hide inaccuracies. Three days later, another article appeared in that same newspaper titled Remnant of Old Regime, tying George Barker to the previous Republican government full of corruption and embezzlement and ending with the statement, quote, there cannot be a thorough cleaning out until Barker is cleaned out of the office of Secretary of State. This is two weeks before voters would decide the next Secretary of State in the November election. Oof. Yeah. So George Barker insisted that these attacks were because the editor of the Capitol News was none other than C.O. Broxson, who happened to be the private secretary of Governor Moses Alexander. Could be a bit of a conflict. So George Barker refused to give the Capitol News any printing jobs at the Capitol building and instead signed these printing contracts to Republican slanted newspapers like the Idaho Statesman. George Barker also called into question Governor Alexander's funding of the Capitol News, which he stated was a misappropriation of state funds because the governor hired the editor to be his private secretary to pay, quote, the salary of the editor of the Capitol News out of the state treasury funds under the guise of paying it for his secretary. He's basically saying you've got this newspaper as your political arm, and it's this newspaper is edited by your very own secretary who's here in the governor's office, and he's writing salacious things about your Republican colleagues. This could be a conflict of interest, and there's a ton of bad blood building at the state capitol. Who's going to be the man who takes care of business? Warden Snook. On October 27, 1916, he's on the second floor of the Capitol building after hours in front of the governor's office with the Secretary of State, George Barker, and they're talking. He's waiting for C.O. Broxson. When Broxson appears, Snook hails him over, and he asks Broxson if he still wrote editorials for the Capitol News. Broxson said, yeah, I do, sometimes. Snook then asked if he had written the editorial about an investigation into the penitentiary, and he responded, yes. Quote, at that instant, Warden Snook swung his right hand on which was a brass knuckle or some other instrument with the force of his 200 pounds behind it to Broxson's head striking him above the right eye, knocking him unconscious and flooring him. 
Sorry, what? <laughs> Cold cocks the secretary of the governor of Idaho right in front of the governor's office. And Warren Snook continues just to pummel the secretary with kicks and punches when the director of Farm Markets Bureau actually heard the commotion and ran into the hallway and pulled Snook away. Broxton had a three-quarter inch gash to the bone above his right eye, quote, from which blood flowed over his person and about the floor. Whew. News started to spread like a wildfire, and nearly every sensationalized article included the fact that Broxton was a weak man who wore glasses which were knocked off his face. Snook said that they had exchanged blows and that he had been punched by Broxton during the melee, and he didn't have any sort of brass knuckle or anything like that. It was his bare fists that busted up his head. So Snook stood in the doorway to prevent Broxton from getting back into the governor's office to clean himself up unless Broxton would swear to never write anything more about him. Broxton wouldn't say a word. So Snook finally led him into the office to clean himself up, and a doctor arrived and stitched up the wound, which was three-quarters of an inch long and a quarter of an inch deep, quote, the flesh being laid open to the bone. His face was frightfully swollen and bruised. Broxton insisted that the whole beatdown was premeditated, and several articles filled the newspapers for both sides of the fight. One of my favorites was actually by a man nicknamed Alaska Joe, who went down a whole list stating things like, quote, Any common fellow like myself that wasn't on the inside might think it a bit risky to assault a man just outside the Supreme Court, and in the hall the judge's chambers open onto, but not for Snook. And, like, further down the list of, like, but not for snooks, he writes, Of course, there is nothing unusual in Johnny doing his little stunt in the state capitol just outside the Supreme Court, because Johnny has always shown the public he didn't care a damn for any old authority, except himself. Ooh. Yeah. Man. Okay. I, like, don't even know where to start <laughs> with this incident. I mean, it's insane. I know. Um, the idea that, <laughs> that this guy had a three quarters of an inch gash to the bone and that snook was like i just did it with my knuckles right if that's true he is the toughest man ever um and also i love that all of this was just because he like talked about in the paper like oh he got it delayed because he really did have something to hide and that's how honest snook was was like I'm sorry, you you said what about yeah, me? Yeah, like, it's about his honor. How dare yeah. you? And also, I do wonder, I wonder how much of that, like, insane frustration was, like, kind of over everything that had been built up. Like, yeah. it just was, like, you know, people escaping. And it's, it's a frustrating job to deal with manipulative inmates, in day, like, day in and day out. Yeah. And so there's all this frustration. And then he gets accused of... Of trying to cover something up, even though the, you know, auditor came in and said, like, this is the cleanest book I've ever seen. And so just it was like, I just wonder how much of it was just like, I'm so mad about so many things. And yeah. sorry, you're on the ground in front of me right now. You're going to get all of it. <laughs> yeah, totally. Literally, he said that it, it wasn't the fact that Broxon was the private secretary to Governor Moses Alexander it was his his reputation. He said, quote, his personal honor had been attacked without Warren. And the Idaho statesman gave him a front page article to explain himself titled, quote, 
Only means of redress possible were my bare hands, declares Snook. He kind of explains the whole process of his thinking, and it, it goes along those same lines. I think there was a lot going on at the prison, and he's getting these like political attacks directed at him. And he's like, I am a good warden. I am a good man, and you're attacking my reputation and you know my honesty. And I'm, I'm going to deal with it. If no one else is going to deal with it, if they're all going to be political about it, I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to shut you up, you know, the only other way I know how. And so he writes, Feeling that some people may criticize me as a warden of the penitentiary for taking the law into my own hands in punishing C.O. Broxson for attacks upon my character and editorials and news items he has written at different times for a period of nearly seven years. I wish to say to those people that I should be protected from such wrongful accusations and insinuations as he has published, for the very reason that I am warden of the penitentiary, but the law does not offer me any relief. People of Boise will bear me out in the statement that all classes of citizens have suffered from similar attacks from this man's hands, individuals, firms, corporations, officials, and even courts. Broxen was placed in jail for contempt of court, but the reasons for this action were so cleverly misrepresented that he was proclaimed a hero and subscriptions were raised to pay his fine. I took the only means of defense a man has against such unjust attacks. I used my bare hands, nothing else. <laughs> he made a cowardly attack on my honesty, a thing I will not permit any man to do, and I hope all will consider that I stood all that a man could stand." In justice to Mr. Barker, I wish to say that he knew nothing about it and had nothing to do with it. It was a matter wholly between Broxen and myself. Neither Snook nor Broxen were arrested. No charges were ever brought up. But the stunt resulted in the end of Snook's first career as warden of the Idaho State Penitentiary. He actually filed a resignation effective December 31st, 1916. Secretary of State George Barker also lost his re-election bid because of this stunt. And though the governor's private secretary and the editor of the Capitol News, C.O. Broxen, was bested by Snook, he successfully took out both public figures with his publications and how he spun this whole event at the Capitol building. Before Snook left, he filed a final biannual report for the period between December 1914 and November 1916, emphasizing the fact that he had created work for 40% of the trusted prison population, working fields and clearing roads, while 60% remained idle at the institution because, quote, no provision has ever been made by a legislator in the state for the establishment of a prison industry. And it seems like the longtime prison physician, George Collister, was also a little upset through some more salt by saying, quote, most of the cases which I am compelled to treat result from the overfeeding of idle inmates. So he just like adding, compounding that like Snook's been asking for money from you, the legislators, for years and you won't do it. And it's making both of our jobs harder. And the report actually serves as one of the longest and most meticulous binaural reports at 58 pages long, breaking down mm. every single expense. It's like 30 pages of like every line item it's incredible. So detailed. I love that because it's like, it's kind of weirdly petty. It is. <laughs> it's like, it's like, oh, you want to accuse me of stealing money yeah. and not just once, but twice? Fine. I'll show you what's happening. Yeah. I love it. I, I love a good petty action. And several guards actually also signed a resignation too. They were like, if Snook's out, we're out. Like, 
No, we're mm. yeah. It it was it was pretty wild. There were a lot of people behind Snuck. He's actually replaced by Warren Frank E. Decay on January first, nineteen seventeen, and spent a, a week with Frank Decay, uh, going over his duties and you know doing a peaceful transfer of power and, and helping him into the new position. And with that, John Snuck returned to his ranch and continued working as a legislator for Lemhi County. And as a legislator, he still cared about the prison and called for major appropriations for the penitentiary to create a prison industry program. And this wouldn't come until 1923 when money was finally approved to create the shirt factory, which is completed in 1924. Despite being out of office for nine months, the Capitol News again attempted to besmirch Snook with a story about prisoners doing the clerical work and $13,318 being unaccounted for. I don't understand. Like, what have they not learned? He literally <laughs> beat They're the like, snot so out of this guy who kind of... <laughs> oh my gosh. Like, to the bone, supposedly with his bare hands. I don't... <laughs> what? Yeah. I don't... Uh, ridiculous. Dumb. It's a dumb idea. Right. And that's that's what other news agencies because they were like, this is all this is all just nonsense by the Capitol News to move the focus away from them because the former secretary of state, George Barker, was actually taking them to court and charging them fifty thousand dollars in damages for libel. This story comes out to redirect the focus, which, you know. We, we don't see that ever, you know, redirecting the focus with a whole nother... That never that happens. That doesn't happen today That's, ever, yeah. That, that sounds fake, actually. So Warden Snug returned to Boise <laughs> to examine the books himself for any discrepancies and repeatedly asked why he wasn't arrested if there was money missing. George Barker went to court repeatedly and finally stopped the lawsuit writing on July 4th, 1918, that he was informed by his attorney that Capital News and Broxen were, quote, judgment-proof. He said that there was no way Barker could win, and so Barker wrote, quote, It is unnecessary to comment upon a paper or individuals who lend themselves to a paper with the advantage of knowing in advance it is judgment-proof. Will use libel to influence the election of a governor of a state who in turn rewards such libelous utterances by rewarding their author with a high state position and the agency of the libel with the state patronage. My only offense at Boise was fighting this sort of thing. I'm still fighting it, but we'll have to find some other avenue to carry on the fight than under the laws of my state, which apparently can be evaded by the impecunious and financially irresponsible or by those who know enough of the secrets of big business to protect themselves from the victims of their displeasure. These are words of the former Secretary of State, like one of the highest offices, and he is saying, you thought we were corrupt. Look at what the current governor is allowing into the governor's office. And Snook, He just continued on with his work as a legislator and served as the chairman of the Committee on State Affairs in the House and was in line to actually become the Speaker of the House. In 1923, prison warden W.L. Cuddy became very ill and had to take leave of absence for 30 days. And after regaining his health, he told the board that they should start looking for a replacement, but they refused until he got his strength back. He returned to the prison, but was hospitalized again in December 1923, and he actually had to render his resignation verbally to the governor from a hospital bed. 
In an article on January 19, 1924, in the Idaho Statesman, quote, State officials feel that there is to be a change in the wardenship, and all agree that John Snook of Lemhi County is the man who will next head the institution. He has the reputation with prison officers of being the best warden that ever was in the institution. Mr. Snook was in Boise a few days ago, and at that time, it was reported he talked with prison officials about the wardenship. Before he left, he is reported to have said that he would be back soon. Sure enough, John W. Snook was reinstated as warden of the Idaho State Penitentiary less than a week later on January 23rd. William Cuddy died two months later on March 17th. 1924. So there are several write-ups that stated the prisoners were actually agitating a riot in the dining hall when Snook arrived. And Snook entered the dining hall and, quote, the uproarious clamor turned to sudden, totally surprised silence when many of them recognized (laughs) their former warden standing right in their midst without a trace of fear. I listened to your music all night, he said calmly, but I don't intend to listen tonight. The convicts exchanged nervous glances as John went on. There are enough of you here who remember me to know I maintain discipline, and there will be no rioting permitted, or somebody is going to get killed. It was not an idle threat. It was a simple statement of fact, and the inmates knew it. So apparently, like right after he said this, one prisoner actually shouted, Boo! (laughs) Nobody joined in. They actually all turned at and stared at him wide-eyed before Snook said, get him out of here and they sent him to solitary confinement oh yeah they dragged him away and warden snook actually ordered everybody to go to work immediately and you know he he basically returned the prison back to law and order and uh he came right as this newfangled t-shirt factory that i've been mentioning this whole time he's been wanting a prison industry this whole time he returns to his wardenship, and it is constructed. All he has to do is run that thing. By May 1924, Snook was proud to share the numbers with journalists. Uh, the shirt factory had 165 people working in it. The laundry had four. The garden had six. The shoe factory had four. Uh, there were eight old and cripples. Two men were on death watch. And the journalist actually went down the list and asked, what it was that, quote, John Snook's steady blue eyes took in the subject of inquiry and just a trace of pride was noticeable as he replied, that's our morning report, which shows just where every one of the 272 prisoners on the penitentiary roster are confined or employed this morning. Please notice that every abled body is assigned to some job. He finally did it. John Snook finally did it. Every person was working. There was no idle prisoners on site unless they were crippled or in death row. Man, that feels like such a like lifelong goal achieved. <laughs> I know. Like the whole time, everybody done, on the right? report, right? Oh, my gosh. We are He's coming like, to I the end it, here. I did it. I can retire and chill. <laughs> Never. As things at the prison were turning to order, the Bureau of Investigation, which would become the Federal Bureau of Investigation in 1935, was sending agents undercover into prisons throughout the country to infiltrate and investigate. They were looking into the treatment of prisoners and looking for any forms of corruption, mostly in connection to prohibition. One of the largest busts actually came at the Federal Penitentiary in Atlanta, Georgia. Warden A.E. Sartain and his deputy warden L.J. Fletcher were caught in the middle of a bribery and conspiracy ring as they began accepting bribes from prisoners in the business of illegal alcohol. 
Warren Snook got a call from Calvin Coolidge's attorney general asking him to come to Washington, D.C. for, quote, consultation with reference to taking over wardenship of Atlanta. We need someone to clean up the mess here. Warren John Snook was honored by the call from the highest office to help clean up the mess. He began his new duty on January 15, 1925, where we'll pick up next week in part two of Warden John Snook. He's going to Atlanta. He's going to Atlanta. I mean, I just want to reiterate what I said in our episode last week. Do not mess with him. He just... I don't understand how many examples people need. Like, (laughs) (laughs) he... I'm frankly speechless because he's done so much and he's dealt with so many, so many intense situations. And I mean, I'm kind of annoyed by like how rule followy he is because <laughs> yeah. I'm not a rule breaker, but I'm also like, oh, come on, man. Yeah. Like, come on, just yeah. let him out at the books. It's not that big of a deal. Yeah. But I think at the same time, that is the reason that he is so successful in what he does mm-hmm. is because he's honest and because he builds up this reputation of following the rules and following the law. And he's actually pretty unique, I think, even in the early 20th century to find a man who was so honest and stuck by his morals. Um, that was hard to find. They did not grow on trees, men like that. Right. And they still Nor don't. do they? Yeah. 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 Everybody, thank you for tuning in once again to our Disturbing Justice season. We will see you next week. Next Tuesday, we'll get to another exciting and kind of funny riot that occurs on Tuesday. So, yeah. Everybody take care. Do your own time. And do your own number. Talk to you soon. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com. They had a riot in the penitentiary, and the governor, the warden, was sick in the hospital, Bill Cuddy, and the governor, Charlie Moore, called me up one night and asked me if I would come down and take charge of the penitentiary until Cuddy got out of the hospital, that he could hear the prisoners rioting up there, and so... uh, at that time, we had a railroad running into Salmon from Armstead, so I took the railroad and went down, and 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 I was in charge for about two weeks when Bill Cuddy died. All I had to do that morning when I went into the dining room when the convicts was having breakfast was to talk to them and tell them that there was enough of them there that knew that I maintained discipline and that no rioting would be permitted or somebody was going to be killed. And for them all to report for work that morning, which they did. And that was the end of the riots. Oh, for crying out loud. <laughs> Boy, they had a lot of respect yeah. for you. <laughs>